Welcome to week 21 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. We are now one third of the way through this literary journey, and it is time to look at the book that I would take to a desert island along with a Bible and the complete works of Shakespeare that the programme normally offers. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the incredible success my English teacher had in putting me off literature while I was at Rodine. One of the many books that she took and trashed was Silas Marner, George Eliot's third novel. Dear heavens, how I loathed and detested that book. It felt sanctimonious, tedious, interminable and superficial all at once. If you do not know it, however, please do not rely on my teenage evaluation. It is, like all of Eliot's novels, humane, serious and very readable. The problem I had engaging with it as a 14-year-old was my own, compounded by Miss S's dreadfully dull approach to teaching and learning. That said, speaking now as an experienced English teacher, it is not a book that I would use as a set text for adolescence. I revisited Eliot in my late teens. I'm not sure how I came to read Mill on the Floss. I think possibly my mother or godmother Kate recommended it. And given that I was consuming the most arrant tosh at the time and doing as little schoolwork as I could get away with, guilt and shame played their part in helping me pick up George Eliot's second novel. It was a revelation. I adored Maggie Tulliver. I utterly understood her tempestuous nature, awkward interactions with her family and her peers, and her intense intellectual engagement. Like her, I was a child with unruly dark hair and a total inability to remain neat and orderly. And throughout, Maggie is depicted so warmly, so kindly, by the wise, omniscient narrator. All sorts of other books intervened and I did not continue reading George Eliot. It was not until I reached university and made my way through a course on the development of the English novel that I engaged fully with the rest of her novels and her essays. I marched through Adam Bede, reread and finally understood Silas Marner, sobbed my way once again through Mill on the Floss, scratched my head over Romola, yawned through Felix Holt the Radical and raced through Daniel Deronda. And finally, at last... I opened Middlemarch. There are parts of Daniel Deronda, notably the incredible exploration of a thoroughly toxic marriage, that are sublime, terrible and unequalled for me in literature. But it is an uneven book. And as a perfect whole, nothing comes close to Middlemarch. Much as I do love Bleak House and enjoy Dickens generally, for me, his dexterity and flair are obvious, entertaining, limited and ultimately not fully satisfying. I think of Dickens as being like a lovely pot of fresh, hot, buttered popcorn. Eliot is more like an excellent risotto. Reading Middlemarch is to enter a rich, substantial, complex, subtle and above all compassionate world. It could be the difference between male and female, but I think it is more complex than that. 
Dickens was born in February 1812, Elliot in November 1819. Seven years is not a huge difference in the grand scheme of things, but reading their novels, there does seem to be a significant generational difference. Dickens's childhood takes place in a wholly pre-Victorian world. By the time Victoria accedes to the throne, Dickens is 25 and has been earning his own way for over a decade, first as a clerk, then as a reporter and as a successful author from 1836 when the Pickwick Papers were published. Elliot's trajectory is very different. She is primarily her father's housekeeper from the age of 21, and she only begins writing in her late 20s, initially translating explorations of Christian faith and spirituality from German texts. Both writers explore historical themes and times. Both Bleak House and Middlemarch are set in the early 1830s, but that is where the similarity ends. Dickens is primarily an entertainer with a social conscience and the banked anger resulting from his own chaotic childhood experiences. Eliot is from the start an intellectual and a philosopher. She mixes with a high-minded circle of intellectually inclined middle-class families from Coventry with strong social consciences underpinning their businesses and factories. Her fiction is underpinned by her study and engagement with thinkers such as Feuerbach and Spinoza and is naturalistic, reflecting the mundanities of human lives and the richness of human personalities and relationships. And most shocking of all, she is agnostic, and lives with a married man. Her scandalous private life hardly hindered the success of Middlemarch in 1871 to 1872. Like Dickens's books, it was published in serial form. It sold well, despite some criticism, and was hailed as a work of glory by Emily Dickinson, amongst others. I can't helping that Nietzsche disliking it is probably a badge of honour. It has gathered momentum in the intervening years and is now recognised as one of the best British novels ever written. What makes it so good? First, it is utterly immersive. Middlemarch vividly evokes a place and a time, the sense of the currents of politics, business and expansion of industry are strong and embodied effectively in the characters, all of whom seem tangibly real humans rather than the types and the figures that Dickens draws. Eliot builds complexity, ambiguity, human flaws and the petty cruelties and tyrannies that can cause so much unhappiness in our relationships with our family and friends. Her people are exasperating, mischievous, morally layered and full of errors, misjudgments, misinterpretations. Where Dickens's characters tend to be one note and symbolic, Eliot's people are exactly that. People, multifaceted, uncertain, at cross-purposes. There are readers who have found the plot confusing and incoherent, but I remember vividly first reading it with absolute wonder as she took her many and various strands and groupings and wove them into one of the most satisfying endings. She is far too subtle and sophisticated to allow the good to end happily and the bad unhappily. 
She gives us the satisfaction of comeuppance for some of her characters, but by no means all. And in the spirit of naturalism, she shows some of her most shallow and unpleasant characters thriving, while some we have been cheering on achieve either an empty success or a form of failure that makes a mockery of their endeavours. There is nothing glib, nothing facile. I have reread the book every five or six years and it is now embedded in my mental library. There are fixed scenes that I remember vividly and there are other sections that are thrown into sharp relief as part of a reread, making me wonder how I could have forgotten them. But overwhelmingly, it is the characters who live alongside me, some as trusted friends, Mary Garth and her lover Fred Vincey, Dr Lydgate, Dorothea Casalban and the vicar Fairbrother, and as terrible enemies, Casalban himself, Rosamond Vincey, Raffles and Bulstrode. And then there are the Cadwalladers, a worldly couple who wryly observe their neighbours and their doings. Middlemarch is a depiction of a society that can seem straightforward on the surface, but is full of twists and reverses. The final element that I love is Elliot's voice. Dickens fizzes and pops a firecracker, spinning elaborate extended metaphors and ladling on the words, the images, the symbols. There are times when it is too much. And he also has a major fatal flaw, which is his depiction of women. But Eliot, at least for me, is pitch perfect. She is quietly humorous, ironic, sharp-eyed, but also has a generosity of spirit towards her fellow humans, even as she skewers their faults and failures. After I read and raved to my mother about the wonders of Middlemarch, she picked up my by then well-worn copy and rattled through it, periodically amazed that Elliot was such a funny writer. While she is wry and can be sarcastic, her style is also fundamentally kind. She is clear-eyed, but she is compassionate, even to Bulstrode, the banker whose machinations and deceptions bring him to ruin and by association bring his debtor, Dr Lydgate, a degree of disgrace. From the start, fond as Elliot is of Dorothea, she also skewers the girl's pretensions and inconsistencies, but does it with a fundamental grace and tenderness. We know that Dorothea has lessons to learn and sorrows to bear from the opening chapter. Then there is Rosamond Vincy. Pretty, superficially accomplished, elegant, apparently sweet and pliant. In truth, she is a termagant, petty, tyrannical and utterly self-centred. She marries and then destroys Lydgate as effectively as any spider or mantis eating its mate. Elliot writes wryly about Lydgate's vulnerability to Rosamond. He believes that a woman ought to produce the effect of exquisite music, Plain women, he regarded, as he did the other severe facts of life, to be faced with philosophy and investigated by science. But Rosamond Vincy had the true melodic charm. Elliot herself had been regarded as plain as a child, so plain that she must have an education since no man would likely to wish to marry her. Portraits of her, however, depict a woman with somewhat heavy features, lustrous thick hair and a kind, warm smile. No beauty, but no horror show either. 
And whilst being regarded as plain clearly rankled, as her view of Lydgate's perception of plain women attests, men did fall in love with her. In her 30s, she met George Henry Lewis and they lived together until his death in 1878. She then met a man 20 years her junior, John Cross, and married him in May 1880. However, her kidneys were failing and she died in December 1880. Although she died relatively young at 61, she had lived a rich, fulfilled and generous life and continues to share her generosity of spirit with us still. The final words of Middlemarch are some of the finest ever penned by any writer at any time. She is magnificent in her ending. She describes Dorothea's death at the end of a long life. Her finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature, like that river of which Cyrus broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. For me, that is the absolute finest ending of any novel in English. And I hope that we can all enjoy and celebrate those around us who live hidden lives. Next week, I will be remembering my first encounter with the books written for adults by another intelligent, compassionate and generous woman, Eva Ibbotson, best known for her children's books such as Witch Witch and Journey to the River Sea. Join me then. <laughs>